yeah, on to today's guest. Today's guest is uh, at Checkmatey, known as Checkmate on, uh, on Twitter, who's uh, been gaining a, a very solid reputation in the, the crypto um, world of, uh, of Bitcoin. And um, his, his on-chain analysis and uh, insights and knowledge that I find just to be completely, uh, they blow me away. Um, and as I've had the, uh, the pleasure of, of meeting Checkmate and standing face to face with him and listening to his, um, his insights for like three hours, I was playing him with questions. That's why I wanted to bring him on the show to, um, to see uh, you know, if we could delve a little deeper or educate some people that are coming into the space that are looking for a little bit more um, rounded knowledge. So uh, welcome, uh, Checkmate. Thank you, Daniel. It's really good to be here. And it was a, it was it was good going through the punches and and talking through all the different rabbit warrens. And to be honest, there's there's not enough beer in the world to get down all the Bitcoin rabbit holes. There's just so many different things that you learn. And and to be honest, I've I learned more from Bitcoin and more from studying this space than I have in years of tertiary education and and even full time work. The amount, I mean people often say that it feels like time is compressed in this industry because you just, you pick up so many very broad and, and, and quite worldly things just by being exposed to it. And, uh, and when you see how big, what Bitcoin could be and kind of where this is going with the, the, the change of money, uh, it's, it, you have to be a polymath to really understand it. So there's almost no one in the world who can say they're an expert. Completely agree. And, you know, that kind of, uh, it's, it, one of the questions I wanted to ask you actually is like, um, you know, your background, uh, because there are so many people getting attracted to this space. And the reason being, there are so many different layers to it that people could slot themselves into. You know, how, how have you, like, what, what led you into Bitcoin? What was your background and um, what kind of like niche have you found yourself? Good question. Um, so for me, I mean, I, I'm class of 2018. So I basically uh, entered at the peak. Um, and to be honest, the first thing I bought, I, I, I didn't buy Ethereum. Uh, I bought Ethereum first. I didn't buy Bitcoin for any other means than just kind of moving it to something else. So I certainly was one of those people who came in and got excited by the hype, got excited by the tech, saw all of these amazing, you know, call it dot com uh, bubble type thing. Oh, wow, this is all going to change the world. You know, I came for the tech. And was that, was that media? Was that media that you were just seeing like headlines? Like, no, to be honest, so um, I, I'd seen, so in terms of when I heard about Bitcoin, um, I actually heard about Bitcoin way, way back in 2012, um, mo most of the time through, through Silk Road and things like that. Um, I, however, never actually ended up going down that rabbit hole. So I, I'd kind of heard about it and it, it was probably too early in my life to have actually had anything click. So what was, age are you? Let's give some late, late, late 20s. You're late 20s now. <laughs> late 20s. Oh, so. Man. So 20, 2012, um, it was it was very early in high school, and it just it was too soon for me to actually pick up really the subtleties of it wow. um, and what that all meant. High so, school, yeah. So that kind of really throws things out. Um, and so I heard about it in two thousand twelve. Never really clicked and 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 got it to work. And then um, uh, it really was going. It came in for the tech. So it was, I had a friend who basically introduced me to the whole space. Um, had he also hadn't quite gone down the rabbit hole. It was, it was all about the hype, the marketing, the tech, all that kind of thing. And anyway, as you learn through this thing, um, it was actually Pete McCormack's podcast series on Mount Gox that just 
when I listened to it, because it was basically the end of the bear market and you start thinking, wow, there's just something, what am I missing? Everything is just getting completely slaughtered in the market. I'm clearly missing something from this perspective. And ultimately what, what, what led me down the rabbit hole was uh, McCormack's podcast on Mt. Gox. And you see the, the intricate details of where this thing came from, right? The depth of it all. And when you start to see how the infrastructure has gone from, you know, way back in 2012, 2010 to where it is now, and you then look at the potential impact of what, you know, a new form of money could have on the world. And you look at that 10, 11 year period and you go, wow, let's, let's expand this thing for another 50 years. And if we do, and then you, you know, beyond that, you start looking at how the, you know, the global markets are working. There's clearly signs of cracks and deterioration all over the place there. There's lots of reasons that kind of hint to saying maybe there is something else here. So I remember, you know, I read Bitcoin Standard and that was kind of the first time I was exposed to Austrian economics and that, that the outlay of history, um, of the history of money, when you kind of read that, it's, you can't argue with it, right? You look at things like time preference, you look at things like um, just, just the soundness of money and you look, at, you look at history and, you know, history is our best teacher. You see how the Roman Empire collapsed. You see how all these different societies have invariably come, come apart because of the, the issue of the Triffin Dilemma. Right. At some point there's a global reserve and somebody's got control of the button and you run this experiment long enough and someone's unfortunately going to push the button. And then the whole concept of decentralization makes sense. Right. And I think that's that's a really important cog to get stuck in. Because once you understand that decentralization and the inability for somebody to stop this thing, the censorship resistance, then suddenly a lot of the other challenges that you know these different coins and projects and protocols are taking and their design decisions and trade-offs, they all start to make a whole lot more sense. And, you know, if you can't achieve some kind of decentralization, which is a very, very expensive technical process, right? There's a, it's, it's a high redundant system. And if you not, don't need high redundancy, you don't need a blockchain. So suddenly the, you know, early 2018 me looks at all of these projects and goes, wow, none of you need a blockchain. None of you even need a token. And none of you are decentralized in the first place. So I might as well just be using PayPal. And it just shrinks down the scope of what could be achieved. And really, you know, suddenly Bitcoin sitting there at the top and just, you know, commanding the lead that it does makes a lot more sense in that regard. Yeah, man, like you touched on so many things there. So Pete McCormack, uh, Mount Gox interview, that's, that's when the penny dropped. Could you give us like a little insight for, for those people that haven't listened to it, might not have heard of Mount Gox? What was it like? Um, just quick summary that all of a sudden the sat started dropping. Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie and remember, remember all the key points, but it was, I, I think it was the early technology of what Bitcoin was. Right. So it was, it was understanding the challenges. I mean, Mt. Gox, for those who don't know, was basically the, the very first large scale Bitcoin exchange. I think it was, it was responsible for about 90% of Bitcoin's volume. And this is way, way back when we had very, very early price discovery. So it was basically the first venue that facilitated genuine price discovery. And there's a whole, you know, call it a crime saga type scenario of who done it. And, Basically, Mt. Gox got passed through two different hands of, of people who were operating it. And through the course of its lifespan, there was basically Bitcoins that were being leached out of the system. And through a whole manner of mechanisms and various people who 
you know, had vested interests or wanted to have vested interests. It's become, uh, at the end of the day, the, the exchange basically collapsed. Um, I think it still contains some fairly, fairly substantial, I, th- I think it's almost 10% or something like that um, of Bitcoins. I think it's a couple hundred thousand um, who, that are still kind of tied up in this legal battle. So, so the ones that were hacked, I believe that most of them have never moved. So they still sit there in a wallet that's, that's actively monitored. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens when they finally move. And there's a good chunk more of them that are still tied up in the legal proceedings to be distributed to creditors. And basically this is the first time that the security measures of a, you know, a large scale exchange were not only tested, but obviously breached. And you start to see how complex and when, you know, people talk about Bitcoins getting hacked and, and things like that. And I think the, the, the common media would think that that's, you know, a, a critique on Bitcoin. It's not, it's actually a critique on the security systems of the central operators. Bitcoin itself has never been hacked. The protocol itself is arguably the most secure piece of software that's ever been written. So, you know, Bitcoin itself doesn't get hacked. The exchanges and the people around, and again, most of the time, the weakness in this whole link comes down to people with their hands in things. So that's really what Bitcoin does very well is it, it, it basically removes human interaction from it as best as possible. It relies on probably the mo- one of the most important uh, human um, incentives of greed. And it basically gamifies the concept of greed and profit. Um, and uh, this allows this decentralized network to exist because everybody's incentivized to look after it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's a perfect example of um, what, what people coming, you know, new coming to the space would hear like single point of failure. Exactly. Uh, get thrown around all of the time. And I remember, I honestly remember the headline and the pictures the day that, um, it was released in the media about Mt. Gox uh, being hacked uh, and going under. And I, like everyone else, I had the misconception that that was the money being hacked and all of these idiots had lost their money. And, you know, of course it was internet money. Why, why would anybody invest in that? Of course you've lost it, you morons. Whereas, as you just so eloquently stated, it, it wasn't the money. It was the single point of failure, i.e. the company with some CEOs in charge who were getting greedy and leeching off and, you know, criminal activity. Um, it's one thing I really want people to understand is decentralization. Um, yeah. I mean, could you explain that just a, a little bit uh, more about the decentralization aspect and nature of Bitcoin and how sure. that acts as like you know, ultimate security really? Sure. I mean, so, so the other thing to, to kind of keep in the back of your mind here is that Bitcoin should have died many, 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 many times. And Bitcoin is not the first time that we've tried this. There's been, there's been numerous different attempts, e-golds, Liberty Reserve. There's, been, there's a whole prehistory to Bitcoin of various people who tried to create some kind of internet transferable money. And invariably, they've all basically been taken down by uh, government regulators, um, and in fact, one of the most familiar kind of examples of this is in the online, online gambling. There was a phase when the, the world went through a Texas Hold'em phase and everybody was you know, playing Texas Hold'em. Mm-hmm. And the government really didn't like this online gambling thing. Um, so they started shutting down the, um, the access for the banks. So you could no longer wire your money to these online uh, casinos, basically. And Bitcoin started to get picked up. I believe Bitcoin went through a phase where it was dominated and um, allowed people to actually do this without the ability to censor. So 
with a bank account, your bank can say, well, no, we're not going to allow that transaction to go ahead. You know, it's, it's, it's the most centralized financial system that we have. Um, the way that Bitcoin deals with the decentralization problem. So it, it borrows the concept of BitTorrent and the ability of sharing files and, and, um, and things over the internet in a peer-to-peer network. So people all around the network have in a BitTorrent type scenario, pieces of the file or the whole file, and then they share it out in bits. The way Bitcoin works is, is, is much the same where everybody has a, a copy of the exact same ledger. And when you send a transaction, when you send coins to somebody else, basically the entire network as a whole, you know, talks about it, agrees. And then once your transaction gets confirmed, which is a process called mining and gets actually put into a block, um, all of the nodes in the entire network are then informed of that new truth. And that now says, okay, Alice now sent coins to Bob. So if Alice then goes to try and respend those coins, there's an extraordinary amount of other nodes who will say, hang on a second, you've already spent those. So what Bitcoin really did at its core is it solved what's called the double spend problem, which is the inability for somebody to take $5, spend it, somehow take that same $5 and spend it somewhere else. So once it's gone, it's gone. And that's really what Bitcoin did. And the way it actually achieves that, so there's one thing which is having lots of, of nodes, well, you know, computers, um, some of these run on, on Raspberry Pis is, is basically the level of, of um, hardware we're talking about when we talk about a node. Um, so they all have a copy of the ledger, but there's another set of party who's called the, the miners. And what the miners do is they basically go through the cryptographic hashing and actually securing that data. So there is only one truth. So when you send a transaction, it goes to the miners. They will then compete. And through that competition, they basically have to solve a complex puzzle over and over again. And what happens is it's expensive to do that because you need specialist hardware. You need to have electricity contracts. There's all sorts of logistical and financial hurdles that make it difficult to do. And what that also means is that if you want to fake a transaction or you want to fake coins, it's you have to overcome all of those people who are doing it for the right reasons. And that's how it achieves decentralization. It spreads the ledger, the same copy around the entire world on, you know, very, very lightweight hardware. And then on the other side of it, the people who initially build the chain have extraordinary amounts of hardware built in. And we're talking quintillions of guesses per second. So millions of dollars worth of hardware, millions of dollars worth of energy contracts, large scale institutional grade um, facilities now. And over Bitcoin's 10 year history, it's gone from five laptops running in a basement to that kind of scale industry. And that's really the acceleration. And you know, there's, there's a common saying amongst the Bitcoin community, the best time to have killed Bitcoin was yesterday because almost invariably, the amount of mining hardware, the amount of nodes, the amount of people who are actually in this network, in this space, protecting it because of the incentives is only increasing. So the best time to have killed Bitcoin was yesterday. And that's really the strength of decentralization. Yeah. Oh, so well put. So well put because it is just getting stronger and stronger and stronger every 10 minutes, right? Yeah, basically every 10 minutes. So one way to think about it is if you want to, it's called a double spend, but if you, if you want to basically create your own chain where, you know, Alice sent coins to Bob, but you actually want to redirect them to Carol, right? People like use ABC as an example. Um, what you basically need to do is have enough hardware and electricity 
to basically create a chain that is equally as long. So as the miners are putting hash power and work into this chain, it's like a layer of amber. So once your transaction gets confirmed, the somebody who wants to reverse that needs to not only compete with the miners who are currently working on the next block, they also need to actually do the work to peel back that layer of, 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 of amber. So once your transaction has been confirmed by two, three, four confirmations, they actually need to start peeling back that, that onion whilst also fighting with the chain that's currently progressing ahead. So the honest miners, they're just keeping the chain going. You need to actually compete with not only the honest miners, but you need to be undoing the previous work to have a different chain working. So it's a very, very complex um, task to take it to, to actually do a, a proper double spend. And you're right, uh, you know, basically every 10 minutes, every transaction gets deeper and deeper inside the ledger and it makes it much, much harder to unwind. Okay. Yeah. So well put. And, you know, I want to, you know, like, uh, raise the point again about the single point of failure and about how um, sometimes, you know, I get pulled aside. It's like, you know, you're always talking about Bitcoin. What's in it for you? Are you trying to sell it? Are you on commission? There's this misunderstanding, I think, misconception that Bitcoin is a company and there's a CEO and, um, you know, who, you know, th there's a CFO and a CTO and they're making decisions. How can we help people understand that that's not the case? Yeah, and to be honest, again, history is the best teacher. And the reason that all of the, the, the pre-history, the early examples of, of an, a digital money, um, you know, e-gold and bit-gold and the, the, these things that people have tried to do this before. And invariably, it was having the CEO, the CFO, and somebody for the government to go and say, hey, hang on, shut down your bank account. And that then... You know, if, if all that money relies on somebody having the, you know, the backing in the, uh, in the account and then that account disappears, then yeah, it's gone. So the re so what Bitcoin basically did is it didn't opt for a, you know, send your US dollars here and you'll get a digital representation of those dollars. It didn't go for that path. Instead, what it did is it assumed, okay, this, and, and Bitcoin, by the way, had no value for the first year and a half of its life. It, it, it didn't have a price. Um, and it opted for having a, a monetary supply that was fixed at 21 million. So the concept of this is because there is a fixed number of these coins and there's a fixed number and we also can deterministically predict because it goes, you know, 50, 50 in the initial phase, 50 coins per block every 10 minutes and every four years that halves, that goes to 25, then it goes to 12 and a half. And this continues until the block reward is basically gone. So people know from the very, very get-go, and this is this is forms what's called the social contract. People know from the get-go that there's a very, very limited number of coins, 21 million total. And they that introduces a level of scarcity, right? The reason that people will buy gold is because they know that it's really, really hard to produce. There's not a great deal of it. And there's not a great deal of it to a higher extent than there is for, say, silver. Right. And I've used the analogy a number of times. If, if you look at something like, like um, traditional fiat currencies, basically there's an unlimited supply of them. We have no idea how many of them, of them there's going to be in the future. We can make a pretty sound bet that there's going to be more than there are today. And somebody has the arbitrary ability to make as many of them as we want. Right. US dollars can be printed at whim. There's some great pictures of, you know, various senators standing there with big sheets of printed, printed um, notes. And when you think about that perspective, well, how much would you really want to hang on to? Uh, probably not really. You know, 
it's it's one of those things because someone has the ability to infinitely print them it's not very scarce you then go to the complete other side of the spectrum and you have things like rare artworks um, and I like to use the concept of um, the, the Banksy artwork where he shredded the, the girl with balloon. And I like the concept of Banksy because it fits really well into the Bitcoin story and, he, and Bitcoin really splits the difference here. So with the shredded girl with balloon, the artwork itself is a one of a kind, but the event that spurred it is characteristic of the creator. It, the, the creator put himself into it we don't know who the creator of, you know, who Banksy is. He's one of these, these few folks who's managed to avoid uh, detection for however long. And it puts a, there's a cultural capital and a cultural significance. And a lot of that anchors on the mystery of who Banksy actually is, right? There's a whole lot of stuff that goes into it. And it makes that piece and that event completely, you, you, it's a one of a kind. Sure, you can make lots of girl with balloon prints, but that one got shredded the very first time and the first up, like you cannot re replicate that. And that's the extreme end of scarcity, right? One of a kind. Now in between that is a spectrum and gold is in there somewhere. Um, and what Bitcoin does is it, it aligns that concept of um, having an, not so Satoshi Nakamoto, who is the individual or group of people who developed Bitcoin. Um, they basically left the project uh, after a couple of years in because they were very aware that by having a, a head to cut off the Hydra, um, if you had one head, then the thing can be closed out. So Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever they are, whoever it is, left the project and to date we have no idea who it is. And to be honest, they did an amazing job of maintaining digital privacy, which is a, a challenge at the best of times. So they did that remarkably well. And to this day have never moved any of the coins that they mined. Um, the, by all accounts has basically disappeared. Um, we don't know if those coins will ever move, but they, they basically have the anonymity and they have the, the mystery around who it is. So there's the kind of Banksy analogy, but they created something that is deliberately scarce. And because of the mining, the proof of work, it's explicitly very hard to create. If it was very, very easy to just walk out in your backyard, you know, kick some dirt aside and pull out lumps of gold, there'd be plenty of it to go around and people wouldn't be overly excited about it. It's the same thing that happened with monetary inflation, you know, back when European settlers found, you know, various cultures that used shells or, or, or whatever other type of, um, you know, currency that's rare in that particular island, but not rare to European explorers who can go and dredge the seafloor. So if something could be easily manipulated or, 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 or printed or manufactured to um, as a monetary good, it very quickly becomes an inflationary system and no one wants to hold it because they know that someone else is just making more off to the side because Bitcoin has the proof of work and the mining. It's extremely expensive to replicate or forge Bitcoin. And the other side is that there's, you know, people create other coins or other protocols and say, okay, well, this one's also Bitcoin because it's the same, but it's not because it doesn't have Banksy in the Genesis point. It doesn't have the cultural capital and this tends to, in a monetary good, and this is what we're seeing with Bitcoin, it's basically created a level of liquidity, which means that it's easy for you to buy, get in, get out. If I buy it today, I'm fairly confident that there'll be someone that wants to buy it in five years' time. So because there's that depth of market, it means that I'm more confident to put value into this thing. I know it's scarce. I know there's a fixed supply. I know that there's a lot of energy going into protecting that fixed supply. I know that everybody who holds this coin runs nodes also wants to maintain that fixed supply. 
And I know that there's a depth of liquidity because no, and we've seen this in the market, no other project has been able to capture that kind of, kind of liquidity. So on all of these fronts, it actually starts to form a very, very sound form of money. It, become, it starts to develop monetary characteristics and you could almost argue it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where the longer it exists, the harder it is to kill, the more it backs up the decentralization, the more people then want to buy into it. And, you know, that reinforces the scarcity meme. And because there's a certain number of coins, eventually, if the demand stays the same or goes up, then price is the only thing that can move. So price is basically very reactive to demand because the supply is fixed. And in many cases, you could argue that it's more, more scarce than gold because, well, gold has a constant inflation rate of 2% a year because, yes, there's less in the ground, but our techniques of getting it are getting better. With Bitcoin, it does not matter how much electricity you pour at it, the exact same amount of coins come out every 10 minutes until it halves and then half those coins and then again and again. Is Banksy a Bitcoiner? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, in fact, I've actually tweeted to that effect. Um, we went to a, a Banksy, and strangely, we were in, um, in Malaga in Spain one point. Right. And we found that there was a, a Banksy exhibition on. So no we way. went in there and yeah, it was fantastic. So we were just there for about two, three days and it just happened to have a Banksy exhibition. And as I was walking through it, I, I'm pretty sure I took a photo of one of the artworks and tweeted out and said, Banksy is 100% a Bitcoiner. No way, really. Yeah, I'm positive that I have a tweet where I've taken a photo and sent it. <laughs> that was just a random off-the-cuff question. But like, yeah, well, wow. that, it's part of the reason that I, you know... Use that analogy. Of course, yeah. I think Banksy is one of the most important artists, I would say, ever. Simply because mm. whoever it is captured so much political, social capital and distilled it into a message that is just so important and so well grasped by everybody. Um, his style just captures so many elements of human society and it sums up a lot of the challenges that people face day to day. So yeah, I mean, he's a privacy advocate, so I'm, uh, I'd, be, I'd be hell bent saying that he's a sound Bitcoiner. What are the chances in, over the next uh, couple of years that uh, a Banksy piece of artwork comes out Bitcoin related. That, that would be awesome, huh? Yeah. I mean, the, to be honest, it wouldn't surprise me, but you know, what we're going to see is over time, you know, you roll this thing forward. We just kind of talked through the, um, you know, the, the process by which more and more people get on boarded simply because of the monetary characteristics and this self-reinforcing history. So that's part of it. And we're going to see more and more intelligent people. And we already do see lots and lots of intelligent people moving into this space, right? Which I want to get into. Yeah. That, that I definitely want to get into because there's layers to, to unpeel there. But um, to, to stay with Banksy just quickly, um, obviously completely, uh, you know, nobody knows who he is. Total um, complete price. I have my theories. Okay. <laughs> Go on. I, I, I think it's Del Naya from... Um, uh, from Massive Attack. Okay. <laughs> so the, 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 there's a whole conspiracy theory here that goes back and it, it, it's worth doing the read, but the short of it is um, Del Nye's had a very, very strong history in, uh, in British street art. Um, has always had a, a strong affiliation with street art. And there's a whole series of Banksy artworks that showed up around the world within you know a week of a massive attack show being in that same city so there's a lot of correlations and my guess would be if it's not del naya 
Del Naya knows Banksy and is, is a part of the whole cohort because that, that whole spread art scene coming out of, um, uh, coming out of the UK, it, it, it's a, it's a tight knit group. And, uh, I, that's, that's my gut feel. And we actually saw a, um, a massive attack concert in, in Amsterdam at one point. And, um, it was just an incredible, it was part, it was, it was, in fact, it was all visual. Um, it was a reconstruction of, of the mezzanine, uh, album. And it was, it was artistic and the, it talks about privacy. It talks about things that we see in the world and the way governments behave, the way that our freedoms are being impinged upon time over time. And when you look at the messaging between what, what massive attack talks about, you look at the messaging between Banksy. Uh, and then to be honest, you look at the messaging of what Bitcoin is there to solve. It's the same flow. It's, and, and I think what we're starting to see in the world is this, this boiling up, of people who are feeling disenfranchised, people who are kind of tired of the way the system works and they're looking for an opt out. And, you know, I've had friends, in fact, I've got very few friends in, in the real world who kind of get Bitcoin. I'm, I, I still remain the, the weird dude who, who's the only one who gets it. Yeah. And um, the thing that does get them is when you explain how the world is currently, you know, somewhat a little bit on the brink of, of, uh, of some financial chaos, you can then talk about the concept of opting out. And why Bitcoin actually provides a pathway for people to genuinely opt out. You know, it's, it's, it's a completely nonviolent protest against the system that quite frankly doesn't work for the vast majority. Which we would call, uh, we would term as, um, as a hedge in, um, exactly. in betting speak or in financial markets. Um, exactly. And the world for hedges is enormous. You know, gold is a hedge, Bitcoin is a hedge, real estate is a hedge. Um, hedging is important because risks happen and, the world is uncertain. Things change all the time. And, you know, hedges are important because it gives people confidence, gives people, you know, you can put your money into an asset and believe that it will be there in five, 10, 15, 20 years and preserve its value. And people, people need that. People need stores of value forever. And the current system we're in, those stores of value are unfortunately high risk stocks and, um, you know, various things that are being driven by a whole manner of, uh, of mechanisms. But in general, it's a, you know, stores of value right now are risk on assets and that's not an overly healthy place to be. No, exactly. Okay. Risk on assets, volatility, you coming into Bitcoin at 2018. How did that go? Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's all a bit of a blur because it, it's been such a learning curve. And the reality is, you know, despite the money lost, it, it it's actually the, some of the best money I've ever spent because, through that process of actually experiencing a bear market up front, right? It was mm -hmm. the first time I invested in anything. Was it really? So I'd, never, wow. I'd, never bought, I'd never bought a single thing in my life in terms of financial products. The first thing I bought ever was Ethereum, right? Right. That's, that's, that's literally the place that I'm in. So going through that process and, and learning about how market structure works. I mean, my, my first year and a half was basically looking at charts, right? Um, I taught myself how to trade. Uh, I, I, I studied all sorts of different patterns and, and market fractals and all that fun stuff. Um, I started to move more into the macro space and looking at really big picture. How does, how does the world fit together? How do financial markets work? Um, and then, then I actually fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So I went through the whole, the whole, you know, financialization by fire process before I actually went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Then I got stuck into the decentralization and then I started to understand how this whole thing fits together. 
So it, it was, it was, it's been a process, but for me, it's been the perfect process to go down because it taught me the basics first taught me that, you know, that's why I say you condense so much learning. into such a small period of time because it's so big. It's so broad. It's politics, it's finance. It's, it, you know, um, it's, it's social equity, all these kind of things. Um, understanding incentives, even just understanding how block mecha- blockchain mechanics work, and we can get into blockchain mechanics later on, but um, how the blockchain incentivizes humans to feed energy and feed money and feed everything into it. I mean, you start to see how humans react. So it's psychology as well. So, um, you know, people say that, you know, Bitcoin teaches you an enormous amount in a very short period of time. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll think that months have gone by and I realize I'm, I'm in the same week. It's just, it, yeah, it's a real mind bender. <laughs> so for, there are going to be, I think, I don't know. Um, I, I believe we're on the verge of like another incredible move to the upside, which we saw back in 2017. And I think history is going to repeat itself where we're going to have people coming into the marketplace that are seeing the headlines, all of a sudden it's going to start showing up on like the 10 o'clock news in your local town, like Bitcoin's, you know, once it breaks 20,000, it's game on. Right. And that's going to bring in people that, you know, like yourself, it could be the first thing they ever invest in. And then, you know, I mean, look what happened, right? Um, People got, they, they bought at the top and then sold, and they got bitten and they, they nev- they've never come back in. What would you say to somebody that was just going to go through that? Like, um, what'd be like the one takeaway? Like, you know, I did the same as you guys. If you just hang on to this, this one facet of the whole thing, learn through the mistakes I did, what, what, would, you, what would you say to that person? Um, don't be... The, the reality of this thing is that as with all investments, they act in the way that hurts the most amount of people because people are short-sighted. People's time horizons, even when they invest in stocks, right? People, people underestimate the time horizon. So um, one of the, 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 the greatest traders of all time, Jesse Livermore, um, is a great book. This is 1920s. This is a guy who was trading way back in, you know, I, I think he's one of the guys who short the Great Depression because he saw it coming. Um, and he, I mean, it's an incredible book. It's called um, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And it's basically his kind of memoirs. And what's really amazing about the book is he talks about going from a kid trading in bucket shops where they're just, you know, trading, you know, fake stocks and it's gambling, right? And he talks about how he learned to read the tape. He learned to read the charts, right? Back then it's literally a tape with stock prices on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, back in the 1910, 1920s, made $1,000, lost it. Made 10000 lost it. Made 100000 lost it. Made a million, went a million into debt. Made $10 million, went, went another $10 million into debt. So he just went through the cycle. And at no point in time did he ever blame anyone except himself. He learned something from all of those experiences. He learned the market is there, right? The market is just information. What you do in the market is entirely your decision. And investing is very different to gambling because with gambling, when the dice stop rolling, you stop losing money. Until you roll the dice again, you can't lose any more money. Market is not like that. If you put something in, it can go to zero and it doesn't, the pain doesn't stop until you exit. 
So through all of this, Jesse's advice at the end of it, he goes, you know what really stuck with me? I never made any money from trading short-term stuff. He made his money by sitting tight. The idea is find something and we can get into on-chain analytics, which is really where I've kind of, that's, that's been my end um, pathway and kind of where I've, I've, I've rested. If you learn to understand the fundamentals of this asset and you understand just the basics of what it's here for and what it's doing and you start listening to its heartbeat, that's all you need because all you're looking for is when the market goes completely insane, you just need to be ready to take some off the table. And when the market's really scared, that's when you actually start to get a little bit bullish. And there's a lot of really, really simple, simple techniques. And because Bitcoin is an open and transparent system, we can analyze and we can see the transactions. We can see how healthy the network is on any one point in time because we can see who's using it, you know, it's all public information. And you start looking for these fractals and patterns. And basically, if I was to give one piece of advice is extend your time horizon and understand the fundamentals of, your, of the asset. Understand why you're here because the market will not go in your favor. It's like a, a, a watching a kettle. The market will not go in your favor when you keep trying to poke it and say, please do what I want because the market doesn't care. The market will do what it does and you just have to act within that. It's, it's basically like a wave. And if it's not going in your direction, don't be in it. If it is, sit tight. Yeah, perfect. Perfect response. Um, I just hope people like coming in that they, they just put in a little bit at a time and just get used to it, drip feed it. and know this is a 20, 30, 40, 50 year play. This, this is your retirement. This is your store of value. You're not going to get store of value anywhere else at the moment. Um, right. as good as this, um, a very, and a large portion of the markets are currently overvalued and mm-hmm. Raul Powell, um, who looks at all the real macro mm-hmm. macro view of this thing. We're Did you read his to piece today? I didn't know I need to. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get him on Raul. I'm coming after you. I'm going to get you on the, uh, on the podcast for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, 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 what Raul and these guys talk about is this generational shift, which is coming, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the baby boomers, the biggest generation in history, and they've all got very large retirement funds. They're mm-hmm. about to swap from being net buyers to net sellers. And you know, me as a millennial, I'm telling you right now, I'm not buying your stocks because they're overvalued to buggery. So at some point, the net, the net pressure is going to have to switch from buy to sell. And that's when we start to see. And we, in fact, the thing that really to me is saying that there's something going on, gold should be going down when the world is good, right? There's no reason for anybody to hold gold unless something's going a bit pear-shaped. And at the same time that Tesla is posting 20% gains day on day in, gold is creeping higher. And that doesn't happen unless there's something cracking under the surface. And that's, that's the signal. You bring up a great point about the boomers and um, this, this, this terrible meme that's going around the, the okay boomer and uh, all the negativity around um, and this media driven again, just trying to drive wedges between generations, I believe. Um, what can we do? I, I think like the younger generations, if we can really figure out a way to get through to boomers, like, um, like guys, like this is where you want to put some of your wealth because you know, there's so much wealth locked up in that generation. This if like, you really want to change the world for the better after you've, um, you know, passed on Done your bit this. Yeah. Done your bit, buy your bit. 
le- le- buy some Bitcoin and leave it for the uh, the generations below because this is what's going to truly change the world. What, what, I mean, am I smoking? Or- no, no. I mean, like it, it's a fair thing, but I, I think this is this is where it comes down to Bitcoin's incentives, right? There's no, there's nothing stopping anybody from learning about it except their own bias. And the reality is that Bitcoin and, you know, to be honest, the, the industry that's growing up around it, you know, um, what's growing up around this space is probably going to be a very substantial wealth transfer. And it's going to transfer wealth from the old to the young because the young actually, they, they get it, they're understanding it. And what, what, what the older generation fails to understand is that the world is not the same as what it was when they were a kid. And it's exactly the same as why they rebelled in the 60s. It's, it's pretty hilarious that the boomers, you know, poke fun at, at, uh, at millennials. But the reality is we're doing the exact same thing that you did in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that they said the same thing about, you know, in the 20s and the 1800s. And this thing has been going on forever. Oh, it goes all the way back to the, like ancient Greece, right? Everybody thinks that, you know, everybody thinks that the, the, the young are dumb and the older, um, you know, stale and not doing anything with themselves. So what I think Bitcoin is going to do is it's going to, it's going to be a wealth transfer from the old to the young because the young understand they get on board. Um, you know, pe- kids are, kids today are more than happy to own digital items. It's, it comes very naturally to them. This is, not a, this is not a new concept. So the digitization of the world, which is something that a lot of boomers can't quite get their head around. And to be fair, you know, it's, I don't blame them. It's hard. There's a lot going on and it's expanding all the time. Um, but it's also going to transfer money from people who are closed-minded to people who are open-minded, you know, to the slightly backwards to the more progressive. It's going to be a wealth transfer that puts money in the hands of people who wanted to find it. So, you know, Bitcoin's been there since 2009. Now, where I'm, I will probably contest uh, some orthodox Bitcoin or wisdom is I don't necessarily think that you can consider the um, you know, the genesis of Bitcoin completely fair because the question is fair for whom, right? Um, fair for people who were smart enough to be running, you know, a, a CPU miner way back in, in 2009 and happened to be on the mailing list. Yeah, of course. And yes, was it fair and open and transparent? Yes, absolutely. But it's also not fair across the board, right? But you can never achieve that. And this is that, this is that trade-off game. So the world isn't fair, right? The world comes and goes the way it does. And this is where you come down to looking at the market and you say, well, this is what the market is telling me. And yes, I didn't get in back in 2009, I didn't get in back in 2012. But right now, the fundamentals, and this is a really important point, it's been fair, as fair as it could be, as fair as anything can be, everything is a scale. Um, is it the most fair thing that's ever happened? Of course not, right? Are there gonna be way more fair things in the future? Yes, of course but there's a trade-off to all of these things. So moving forwards, the opportunity is there. And, you know, if we assume that this is going through some kind of, you know, I I think the best analogy I've ever heard for Bitcoin and what cryptocurrency represents is it's a call option on a digital future. It's a call option on a, a digitization of stores of value because gold, the reality is not many, not many millennials are going to buy gold because it's well, who holds gold, right? If I can hold digital gold that I can carry with me anywhere in the world, you know, there's great stories of people who've had to flee countries and they remember 24 words. They walk across the border. There's no gold that can be taken off them. They can't have, you know, sure you can take my backpack, but you cannot take 24 words out of my head. So that's really where it, where it gets to is it's, it's about 
people being able to store their wealth and carry it with them without anybody telling them that they can't do that. So, and it, it builds on the store value, but it's also the immutability. It's also the privacy and it's, it's, it's the self-sovereign system, right? There is a demand for people to have bearer assets and gold's a real pain in the ass to carry around. Bitcoin's really, really easy to do that. Interesting. Really interesting to, you know, to, to hear somebody uh, of your age group to lay that out so plainly. And in fact, like the first thing you ever bought was digital currency. Like you didn't even think of going into the stock market. Like no. you think you'll ever buy a stock? I, I, I own stocks. Now, now that I understand markets, I own stocks, but I own um, gold mining stocks because, right. you know, gold's good. Yep. I do believe that gold's going up, but I think the miners are a leverage bet on gold. Right. right. And to date have been, been, been proven right in, in, in most regards. Um, I do see that there's a, you know, for me, right. When you look at the amount of wealth disparity and challenges of millennials mm-hmm. trying to afford housing. Oh yeah. The reality is I've got time. And if I invest two years of my life, right. Mm-hmm. And go into something that I have high conviction in, I spend the time to study the fundamentals and why it exists. So my conviction is extraordinarily high. <coughs> um, conviction is very high and I study it to make sure it remains that way. Right. Or if there's any, any flaws in the logic, I'm there to try and pick it up and see when it's, when it's falling apart. Um, but I've got two years to burn, right? Mm-hmm. If this thing does manage to transform my life in five, 10 years, my time horizon is 10, 20 years, right? I've got that time to wait. And if I spend two years of my life with the potential to, you know, recover 20 years, the last thing I want to do is go into an exorbitant amount of debt for, you know, a mortgage. And if I can actually play some leverage high risk bets now and ultimately pay that thing off much, much quicker, you start saving time off your life, right? And you start doing more things that you want to do rather than working within a system that quite frankly is geared towards keeping you in it. So that's kind of my perspective is you have to take risks. You have to outsmart the system and Bitcoin's a really, really clean way to do that. And right, this brings us really nicely onto um, a subject you and I discussed um, when, when we met in London. Um, th- thanks, by the way, for doing that. It's not, you know, you know, random guy just approaches you on Twitter on your DM and like uh, asks you out for a beer if, uh, and, and you say yes. Uh, that, that's, I think that that's one thing about the Bitcoin community at large is just like, you know, the, the availability of most people has just been incredible. Um, and we talked uh, briefly um, about how it changed my life and um, time preference. And uh, I think um, you correctly um, pointed out that Saifedean Amus in his book, The Bitcoin Standard, he nailed that like um, time preference. Um, could, you, could you just like um, tell people, you know, what that means to have a high time preference or a low time preference and how... How just owning Bitcoin has changed you personally in that regard? Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, the changes are noticeable. So the concept of time preference, in short, is do you value your time today? And for example, um, would I think about going and buying myself, some, you know, go and buy myself a hamburger because I want the gratification today? Or would I rather go and, you know, buy myself two days worth of food supplies for the same cost as the burger um, you know, have lunch and dinner and put whatever savings back into the bank because then I can do something with it at a later point. So the concept of time preference is 
essentially delayed gratification for the purposes of actually bettering yourself and people around you in the, in the, in the context. So a high time preference means that you prefer gratification in the shorter term and a low time preference is the converse where you, you would rather invest in something for the future. Um, and you know, a, if you think about a startup company, it's kind of an example of low time preference because you're putting capital and you're putting energy and you're putting a lot of work and time and energy and hours up front because you believe that there's going to be a significant payoff later on. And what we tend to find is that um, a low time preference society will invest in things today because they can reap the rewards later on. So it helps forward society and the people around you because you are thinking about things from a longer term perspective. And, you know, our politicians are the perfect example of high time preference where they're thinking about at most the next election, Mm -hmm. no longer, they do not care about anything longer. And that shows we have a fairly defunct society and um, where Bitcoin and money and stuff fits into this is that concept of stores of value. Right. And for me personally, the, the understanding and, or, you know, my, my fundamental belief that I think Bitcoin is immensely undervalued means that I would rather put that $5 hamburger into Bitcoin or some other store of value type asset because quite frankly, I'm not going to remember the burger, but if I can pay off, you know, years of my life because, you know, whatever asset it is appreciated way faster than, um, than I would if I was just putting that $5 in a bank account, that's really what it's all about. You want something that's going to protect you against a fairly inflationary environment that we have where, you know, central banks don't particularly care about the average punter. Um, They do care about propping up a market that quite frankly should have collapsed a long time ago. And um, I think Andreas Antonopoulos has a really good um, quote about this. He talks about um, financial markets are like a forest. And what happens is over time, some of those trees die, they drop leaves, they drop, you know, um, uh, twigs and things like that. Every so often you need a bushfire to come through and actually clear out the rubble. Now what the central bank is doing is always pouring fire retardant on the, on the forest floor. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is when that fire finally comes and overcomes that fire retardant, there's so much debris that needs, that should have been burnt off naturally. And these, when I talk about this, it's, it's basically smaller scale financial corrections and resets all that fire retardant, that suppression of volatility, and we've seen so much of this since 2008, when it finally goes, not only does it burn down the entire forest, but it turns the soil to glass and it sterilizes the ground. So now you have to go through an enormous reset. And this is what happened in 1929. And there's a lot of, a lot of elements of, of the current market that puts us in that perspective. And for me, Bitcoin's lowered my time preference to the point where I kind of see this coming. I've accepted that this is most likely the reality that I'm going to have to deal with and my kids are going to have to deal with whatever the fallout of this looks like. So I need to start protecting myself, my family, my future. Now, even though I'm in my 20s, I've still got to start thinking long term because otherwise you're going to get left high and dry and you just don't want to be there. So to me, it, Bitcoin is absolutely low my time preference to the point where it pisses off everybody around me because <laughs> I just won't spend. I just won't spend. And you know, the Keynesians would hate me for saying it, but I got to protect myself. Right? And to me, I see this as a extremely sound way to do that. Yeah. I noticed you owe me a pint actually. So, uh, yeah. Steady on. <laughs> Steady on. <laughs> so, but do you remember the day that happened? Like all of a sudden, like, uh, you're like, whoa, 
What what's um, just amazing me? Like were you no, it was a process. Like, were you stood in front of like the flat screen TV and you're like, nah, screw that. Like, you know No, it's a process. I think once once it sinks in that that you know what Bitcoin is and um for me you know, there's a timing element. My, my studies of, of on-chain, you know, I understand the halving and I understand the, the impact of it historically. And quite frankly, it puts a line in the sand and says, well, if you've got an X amount that you want to accumulate before then, well, that's kind of your timeline. I, I'd, I'd get moving. So, you know, I, I came to that realization far enough back and it's just been one track path. And again, when you look at it, it's like, well, you know, that takes a year and a bit out of my life. I can deal with that. Yeah, excellent. Okay, let's get on to um, on-chain analytics. Um, and I've watched your, um, your, your YouTube presentation and you know, I was blown away. And I had an 18-year-long finance career. And you know, I've seen charts. I've been around this kind of stuff. I've talked to people who are technically minded, mathematically gifted. And um, what you laid out was just another level. It's like, wow. Like, you know, this, this is incredible. And, you know, it, it kind of made me sit up and think about all of the really smart young people that are coming into this business and where are they going to slot in? Because there are so many different, like there's so many different avenues that could be taken. Um, you found your niche. It looks like in um, technical um, on-chain analysis, mm -hmm. you know, this is, you know, uh, technical analysis has been around financial markets for a very, very long time. Those that are not um, well-versed in, in, in that is basically looking at um, graphs, charts, overlapping them with different um, um, kind of, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically, they're all derivatives of price and volume. Everything right. is just a, 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 you know, it derives itself from what is the price, what is the trend of that price, and how much volume got traded at any point in time. But how does how does blockchain analysis differ to like financial analysis and are people even really aware that in my belief, like on-chain analysis, I think is going to be a whole new wave of companies, startups, entrepreneurs, FinTech that I don't think anybody really even realizes is about to happen. And you are right at the front of it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So I, I think, the challenge with technical analysis in modern financial markets is that it really boils down to, well, what did the Fed say about the, um, you know, the latest interest rate? <clears throat> there's, there's no fundamentals that matter anymore. Mm -hmm. So, and sorry, the only, the only market where fundamentals actually have any kind of bearing right now is in store value type assets like gold. We're saying that that's creeping up and in bonds because the bond market is so big and it moves in regard to macro events. That's, that's kind of it, you know, Right now, what on-chain analysis is, is with Bitcoin and any cryptocurrency, well, most cryptocurrencies, you can actually see, um, you can audit, think about it like auditing a ledger. And if you audit that ledger at any time during its history, you have a particular number of transactions, you have a volume that's flowing over it, you have a number of coins that are moving, you have a number of transactions that are moving. So for Bitcoin, as just some examples, we've consistently seen that the number of transactions has gone up over history and it almost follows the price chart, almost one-to-one. -one. So the number of transactions that are occurring is going up, but the mean and median size, the amount of coins that are actually held in those transactions have been progressively going down. 
So if you think about what that means, it means more people are entering the system and it's finding more utility and more market fit because more people are using it more frequently. But the value that's being transferred because of the price increase, $100 back in 2012 was, you know, a BTC, one, one whole coin. Now $100 is 1% of a coin. So you can move the same amount of US denominated value in a smaller amount of coins. So if you now play this thing out over time, you start to look for fractals and you know, the market goes through bull markets, bear markets. And what you're basically looking for is when does the transaction count? And this is only one version of on chain, but there's many types, but when does transaction count start to fall off a cliff? If price is going up, but the amount of utility or the amount of, that people are actually using the network is going down. Mm. Normally that's a leading indicator. So you start to say, okay, well, hang on, maybe it's overvalued. So on-chain analysis at its core, once you get past the, you know, the philosophical, the macro, the financial, the reason, you know, the economics, all the, the social side, that's, that's part A of fundamentals. The other fundamentals is all of this information that is contained by the chain that you get by auditing it and then looking for fractals in that, in that pattern. Can and you just uh, explain what you mean by, by fractals? So, for example, as Bitcoin comes into a bearish market, what normally happens is you get a blow off top. And before that's happened or slightly after that's happened, the number of transactions that are going through the ledger is normally dropped substantially. So what that means is that the price, think about like the PE ratio. If the number of transactions does not actually support the valuation that it's currently at. In other words, the cash flow of Tesla does not actually represent the value of the stock. It's probably getting to the point where it's now blown off. So you can then layer probabilities over that. So you can look for, okay, coming into a bear market, we start getting a drop in transactions. What does that look like? What does the ratio between transactions and, and value look like? A lot of it's ratios and you, you'll see the same patterns playing out. Now, the reason you see the same patterns playing out is the same reason that patterns show up in technical analysis and charts, because it's just a whole lot of people with, who all have the same human psychology, looking at the same thing, doing the same thing, doing what we do, being greedy, and the price is going up, people get exuberant, they don't actually look at the fundamentals, and they get you end up with a blow-off top. So, and, and likewise... <clears throat> Once price has gone through a major correction, you're into a bearish market. Once you start getting to the tail end of that, interest has waned, people have walked away, but the smart money understand when to start accumulating. So what you'll see is in the most dire, desperate parts of a bear market, right at the end, when it's actually the best time to be buying, you'll start seeing transactions reversing as starting to pick up and you'll start seeing larger volume and you'll start seeing more people coming on board. So you'll see that leading indicator of more people getting interested with larger size normally indicates the smart money. So, you know, looking at transaction flows is one of many, many avenues and warrens you can go down. And you, you, can just, like, you, you can just chart this out and then like pick that like you know, straight out of the. Yeah. So there's, there's a number of services. I think, I think coin metrics does uh, mm. the best job. Um, so they've, they've got a really great suite of, um, of data. They basically have nodes that collect um, this stuff and aggregate it on a daily basis, which to be honest, serves most people's purposes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Willy Wu has a site called woobull.com, um, double O, and that's got most of these metrics um, 
charted up there and, and established. So you can actually go and inspect them and, and see how they work. And most of them have the, the attached paper there. So you can see how they work and see the original research behind it. Um, but, you know, some people go to the, the point of actually running a, a full node and extracting the data out of it daily. Um, I've basically written a bunch of, um, you know, custom scripts that pull from various APIs and, and please, uh, please aggregate the data. That. Like where, where can people find um, all of your writing and, uh, and your videos? Let's make sure people know where to, to look. Yeah. For so, I mean, look, all, all my stuff's on GitHub, but I, um, I, I link all of my work. I, I do a lot of work for another blockchain called Decred, which is very similar in structure to Bitcoin, but um, it functions in a different manner. It, it's got a different set of ledger assurances. And to me, it's the only other one that keeps my attention um, solely for the reason that has a very, very strong on-chain signature. There's a lot of interesting use that goes on there. Mm. So if you search for my handle checkmate on, uh, on medium or on Twitter, you'll find me. Um, and a lot of my work, what I find nice about Decred is it has a lot of interesting metrics that have never been explored before. The, the Bitcoin on-chain space is, is quite well explored. There's, I mean, we're still top tip of the iceberg, but there's other chains out there that have, they do have life. They do have, um, you know, people who support them. And they are developing their own on-chain signatures. There's not many of them, but Decred is one of them. It has a really interesting on-chain signature that I've not seen anywhere else. So between Bitcoin and Decred, that pretty much consumes my time. And to be honest, I can see myself doing this thing for a, for a long time. But in <laughs> short, on-chain analysis is understanding the heartbeat of these networks. If it doesn't have a heartbeat, I have a saying, sell it. Um, and that's why I basically look at these two chains because they've, they've got very, very distinct uh, heartbeats and they, they serve very important purposes. I think long-term, I think they're the two assets that are probably the most important since gold. Wow. And, you know, if we just bring it back to fundamentals um, before we move on, um, for me, just being so basic, the overriding fundamental for me is, and you talked about it earlier for Bitcoin, is the 21 million hard cap. Correct. Correct. It comes down to scarcity, um, you know, and both those chains kept that exact property. You know, they, they understand that the, the, the concept of a fixed supply means that price becomes inelastic. Now, this doesn't come without risks. Um, the, the biggest risk for, for these chains long term, the ones with fixed supply, is that they must develop a fee market because the miners at the moment are supported by the coins being issued. Mm -hmm. Now, long term, that block subsidy halves away, or in Decred's case, reduces by 1% every 23 days. Um, that subsidy will go to zero. And the miners must be supported to continue burning that electricity, investing in that hardware and doing the upkeep. They need to be incentivized to do that. And that means that people need to pay fees for their transactions. Now, in Bitcoin's case, we're already seeing the, the minimum fee, it's called the dust limit, the minimum fee to send a transaction is already up around a cent. Now, if Bitcoin goes for another 10X, we're talking about 10 cents. Now, most people who want to get a transaction confirmed then and there, I've, I've done some studies actually to look at this. We could very well be in the next 10 years at a minimum transaction of a couple of dollars, most likely to actually get it confirmed. You could be up around 10, 12, maybe $20 worth of per, per transaction. Per trans and even if you're buying something at the shop. Per transaction. That makes it, wow, okay. That's the minimum. And this is the thing, right? If Bitcoin goes through these 10X cycles, this is where we're going to end up. So there are other scaling solutions. There's things like Lightning Network. There's other, mm -hmm. there's other things which are making block space more efficient. Right. But the short of it is, 
that this fee market has to develop to support the 21 million because if the fee market doesn't develop and people don't use it because the fees are too high or for whatever reason, um, then who pays the miners? And if mm. you're not paying the miners, then they walk away and your transaction doesn't get confirmed. Mm. So this fee market is actually a significant risk. It is, we, we don't know. The reality is we don't know. Bitcoiners love to say it's, it's guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. It's a risk. Um, it's a reason that I support Decred as well because it's probably the only chain that can deal with if a fee market doesn't develop, Decred is basically Bitcoin that can self-evolve. It can evolve because it's got people that can make decisions for it. Um, and not in the sense of a company. It's, it's, it's basically the, the concept of decentralized, all the nodes that verify the transactions, those people are all over the world. And Decred basically incentivize those people to provide, like a hive mind is probably the best description for it. So if a fee market doesn't develop, you need, you need to evolve. You need to change and deal with that uncertainty. So to me, long-term, Bitcoin is going to have to deal with this challenge. At the moment, the, the data and the evidence says it will probably get there, right? Um, it could be that the, the base layer, the, the core Bitcoin layer is predominantly run by um, large-scale settlements. So ultimate settlements. So you'll have these upper layers like Lightning Network or sidechains or any number of other innovations that come above mm, yeah. where people can transact low fees and, and very quickly. And when you want to finally pull that money out into savings, that will be that final settlement. It could also be that everybody, the average Joe will just exist on higher levels, right? Similar to the way that you don't go to the central bank, which Bitcoin kind of is competing with directly. Mm -hmm. You don't go to the central bank for your funds you go to your commercial bank there's going to be commercial bank levels that sit above and allow that scalability whilst you know combating the fee market but the fee market still needs to develop so it's this really interesting symbiotic mix between on-chain versus off-chain type solutions do you think there's any hidden genius with like the fee market um, developing slowly so fees do become ridiculously high which just incentivizes people to huddle and hold rather than rather than spend well it becomes a very shitty money if you can't exit right because the fees are too high it becomes a really shitty money and this is what people this is why it's actually an important thing it, it's a really interesting dichotomy right mm. there's other projects you know another another um very popular project which is focused on privacy's monero mm -hmm. and their design right and this is there's hedges even within the cryptocurrency space. Right, yeah. The he so hedge, hedge, Monero, hedge the hedge, the hedge, right. hedge, the hedge, the hedge, because Monero basically said, okay, we've got 18.6 million coin, mm -hmm. not cap, but that's our limit. Once we get to 18.6 million coins, then it goes to a constant, you know, I think it's 0.1 Monero per block. So it's basically saying there's a tail emission that keeps going. So the, the supply is not capped but the, it's still deterministic. We still know what the supply is going to be. You can still estimate it 500 years from now. You'll know what the supply will be. So it's a hedge in the, in the sense of it, it does the, the privacy side, which Bitcoin does poorly at the moment. Um, every transaction is permanently on the record. So it's actually the worst tool in the world to do anything nefarious with because you'll be, you'll be found. Yeah, so can we like just pause there? Because yeah. how many people will not invest in Bitcoin because it's for terrorists and drugs and completely null and void arguments. Thank you. Now, now there's two sides to that though, because on the dark markets, 
um, which is where Bitcoin found its first home in Silk Road, mm. um, simply because it can't be stopped. So the properties of Bitcoin are still favorable. Mm-hmm. But on the dark markets, Bitcoin is still the most used coin simply because of the liquidity element. Okay. Right? So because if you're a drug dealer, you still need to get out of your Bitcoin at some point. I mean, some right. of them would hold it, but um, you need to get out to pay your bills because you've, you know, you've got more supply coming in. The smart ones would hold it so they can retire from being a drug dealer, right? Well, that's, that, that's part <laughs> of it. Um, so, you know, and the same could be said for, you know, lots of adult, adult film stars, right? They, a lot of them use cam girls and things. They use Bitcoin because it gives them an opportunity. They get, shut out of the banking system mm-hmm. this is where the censorship resistance comes in and this is why censorship resistance is actually the core of this whole thing um but bitcoin is the most used. rabbit hole somehow like you know huh? <laughs> did we just fall into a porn rabbit hole <laughs> oh look at, but the, it, before it we go in, down there it's a family it's show. A, <laughs> no it's a um it's a censorship it's a censorship side right Mm-hmm. People get shut out of, the, of the, the banking system for all manner of reasons. And the reality is a lot of them are legitimate jobs, but people don't like it, right? So it gets closed out. And that stops people from having their freedoms. So, yeah, so really it comes down to censorship resistance. It comes down to Bitcoin's a hedge on the macro environment. Mm-hmm. Um, gold's a hedge on the macro environment. Bitcoin has challenges in, in the way it's designed and that it can't evolve easily and that's a that's both a feature and a bug right the unchanging behavior of bitcoin is important it is one of those value sets because i know that bitcoin's going to be bitcoin in 25 years 50 years 100 years i know it's gonna be the same thing right because it doesn't it's hard to change but it's also software right and software is not perfect it's impossible to write bug-free code so at some point it's going to have to change and the mechanism by which bitcoin is designed is very good at keeping the rules that are already defined running very, very hard to make new rules. And Bitcoin's gone through a number of, 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 of instances of this, which have created, you know, unfortunate forks like Bitcoin Cash, mm-hmm. which quite frankly, they just shed value, right? Yes, they take a bunch of the community who didn't agree with you, but it sheds value. So, um, and the miners have to share between those chains because it's profitable to do so. So Bitcoin actually suffers from that. Um, so therefore, for me, decreds that hedge, right? It, it's a hedge against the failings, not the failings, but the challenges that Bitcoin has to deal with, which are, it's not perfect. Software has to change. Yeah. Um, Monero is a hedge against the privacy element because Bitcoin is going to have a challenging time getting privacy, um, privacy installed um, to, you know, to a suitable level and while still maintaining audibility of the chain. And it's also a hedge against um, uh, the, the fee market because it's, it's already got a system that's deterministically uh, an emission curve. And if you, if you bundle all these together, um, what it all actually boils down to, all this decentralization and all this mining and all this 21 supplier caps and all these things, it comes down to what's called a social contract. Mm-hmm. And this is something that everybody in the community goes, well, I bought in because it's got a 21 million cap. It's got deterministic supply. I bought in for that. As yep. soon as those rules change, sell your coins and walk away, right? You opt out of the opt out. Um, all of these things are completely transparent. And the reason that those three projects in particular are highly regarded by the vast majority of people who understand this space is because their social contract has been the same. It's never changed ever since inception. If you look across the rest of the board of, you know, all the other garbage that's out there, their social contract changes. It's fluid. You don't actually know what you're investing in because you can guarantee it's not going to be the same in two years time, one year time those three projects in particular 
their core values and principles set, they all make trade-offs, right? But their core values are set in stone. People understand it and they all hedge their own, what I think very important part of a digital future moving forward. And if we use the analogy of a social contract with uh, like politicians right now and politics and the mess we're in, I mean, social contracts are getting broken globally. Well, the, the reality is that the social contracts are completely irrelevant because even if you vote them in to do something, there's no incentive for them to do that. There's right. absolutely no reason for them to do it because, and yeah. How often have banks broken the social contract between, um, you know, depositors and um, your, your generation? Have you even been given an opportunity to save? No, to be honest, um, until I, until I really found this space, until I started understanding that, you know, low time preference, even if you, you know, you can save as much as you want. Um, the reality is, you know, you come out of university with student debt, right? So that starts weighing you down from day. I mean, mm-hmm. you come out of, you come out of school with $50,000 worth of debt, mm-hmm. right? Off the bat. And you don't pay. I mean, I'm still paying that back. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a process. So you're already on the back foot. And at the same time, central banks print as much money as they want. And all of the assets that you would otherwise buy, like a house is now 10, 15, 20 times your earnings. So it actually becomes unattainable. And eventually millennials are just saying, well, stuff it. I'm just going to go out for breakfast because I get to enjoy it now, which to be honest, the banks love because it puts us in debt for a long time. Exactly. And it's creating this high time preference mindset, which we're, we're, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of this. Uh, you know, I, I've got four kids and my oldest one is 14 and the next one is 12 and they are just facing every single day, a barrage of high time preference behavior, whether it's a new pair of jeans, new pair of trainers, new jewelry, new this, new that, you know, whatever. It's just like everything is set up against them. Absolutely. And yeah, it's really great to, to listen to people, you know, as young as yourself understand what's going on. And um, hopefully older people listening to this will be as impressed as I am. Most of the world are asleep at the wheel. And that's, I mean, that's, that's where the opportunity lies, right? That's why this thing is, is it still represents never too late. Because we, yeah, the reality is the world has home. no idea. Let's hammer that point home. But for, for people that might listen that are thinking, well, it's $8,000 or 6,500 pounds or how many Aussie or how many Euro per coin? I can't afford that. That's ridiculous. Well, you can buy fractions of a Bitcoin. And, you know, there's a, bit, there's a big push in the industry now to start using. So every Bitcoin you can divide into um, 100 million smaller units called Satoshis. Um, this is why most Bitcoiners are trying to push for they call it sats the standard but it's you know it's a bit scary when you go in there and you know you, you bring it 500 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever and you can buy you know 0.001 of a bitcoin people go well, what and it's actually a temptation to move down and, and and buy other coins without doing the uh doing the due diligence on them mm-hmm. because you can buy more than one right and without actually thinking about well, what's the actual implication of that you can't just go and buy any stock just because it's cheaper there's only a reason for that so, you know, I, I think you can buy fractions of it and the best way to do it is actually to just first dip your toe and you are not too late because, you know, if this is a change of money, right, we're talking about a $150 billion asset, 
competing with gold at eight trillion. There's mm -hmm. orders of magnitude. There's orders of magnitude of growth potential in that. And the infrastructure is there. It's the lowest risk to reward that it's ever been. So the risk has been basically just nullified by comparison. If you invested in Bitcoin back in 2015, there was a 75% chance that it was going to zero in two years time and probably even more so in five, right? Now, the risk of Bitcoin going to zero is in a meaningful time frame. You know, for me, I'd probably say, I don't know, probably sits somewhere around the 70% chance of success. It's probably 30%, probably flipped. 30% chance of failure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're not out of the woods, but I'll tell you what, the, the risk is a lot lower than it was back in the day. If you were back in the day, it was gambling. And that's why $1,000 was a, you know, don't risk what you're not willing to lose. Now that $1,000 is more than likely going to come back and you'll mostly lose money by, um, by your decisions rather than decisions of, uh, of Bitcoin or its, its development path. So if you're losing money, it's, it's because of, your individual decision in when you got in rather than anything fundamentally. If you're losing money, it's probably because you're trading rather than exactly. purely investing. Same. You wouldn't trade gold, right? You buy it, you hold it, you buy it because you believe it's going to be worth more in however long. Um, the one thing I would probably caveat this all with is that for Bitcoin and any of this technology, you must have a time frame longer than four years. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that Bitcoin functions on a four year cycle now, these cycles always change. It's dynamic. Um, I, for one, am in the school that I think that the next, if we do have a bull run, it's either going to be extremely rapid, more like 2012, or we're actually going to get two halvings in a single bull market, and we're talking about a very long, prolonged period of time. Wow. I don't think we're going to see a four-year cycle. I actually think it's going to break the norm. Uh, it's more of a gut feeling, conjecture than anything else, but right. I, I think that the infrastructure is now sound enough that it's going to be more volatile there's more derivatives and more people trading this thing. Yep. So it's going to have more ups and downs and ups and downs. Um, there's going to be more people coming into the thing. And I think that it's going to adopt a lot more people in this wave. And that's going to add liquidity and, 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 and people to it. And that's why it's either going to go vertical or it's going to be a prolonged, stable growth. So anyway, we'll see. That's my, uh, that's my unpopular opinion. <laughs> So for, for people listening to this that, um, you know, they're thinking, wow, um, you know, how do I get into this game? What, you know, what, what is your, you know, what's your day to day? Because this, you, you don't earn money from, from doing this, right? You, you will because you're, you're using money that you are, you know, you're gainfully employed and you're putting that aside and you're investing in it. Uh, stacking sats is, um, you know, the, the, the kind of, what do you call it? A meme. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, give, give people an idea of, you know, what it is you do and what keeps you busy during the day. Yes, I mean, I'm a civil engineer by trade. So, you know, basically anything to do with uh, lots of work in rail, lots of work in road, um, lots of linear infrastructure type projects. Um, so that's, that's basically what keeps me going day to day. And uh, yeah, studying this stuff is, um, is kind of my, my, pastime passion turned uh you know turned income generating in some ways so yeah look i i do hope that this is going to kind of if we see bitcoin start to move if we see decred start to move into some kind of global asset type scenario which is, I, I i honestly think is the pathway these things mm -hmm. are going the world is digitizing um you know there's going to be there's going to be all sorts of industries that are going to need to be upskilled and to me education is what it's all about 
And it's why I do the, the on-chain videos that I do. It's why I do them for free. Um, because, you know, on-chain gives the average punter any hope in, don't trade, learn to understand the macro shifts, know when to get in, when to get out um, with high conviction. And you will, you know, as Jesse Livermore says, sit tight and capture the meat of the trend. And so you, you found the niche in um, on-chain analysis, which is really, really niche. And clearly you're very mathematically minded for people, you know, listening out there that thinking, oh, well, you know, it's great. Um, I would never be able to go into that. Could you highlight a few of the other layers where people might find themselves in this space? I mean, it, it's a really good question, actually. And, and it's, it's growing all the time. Um, you know, there's some, some people who've started establishing, um, you know, recruiting jobs. I mean, there's, there's a huge demand for engineers, there's a huge demand for um, financial, for, you know, people who are financially minded to start building products around this stuff. So um, I think for Bitcoin in particular, it's, it's getting increasingly institutionally financialized. So if there's any realm for, you know, people who are used to, you know, in from the world of finance and business, um, there's startups who are growing up in this space um, all over the place. You know, there's everything from exchange infrastructure to, you know, payments infrastructure to all manner of things. Um, if you're into software development and coding, uh, there's just an infinite amount of work in this, in this industry, um, building and shipping products that, that, you know, um, hardware wallets to, you know, software apps and wallets and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then all the way down to people who are actually building on the protocol. So, you know, this is all open source. All of this stuff is, is literally free and open on the internet. Um, and you'll find that the vast majority of the community is, is, is open to discussing and talking about opportunities and, and helping build value. And the, to be honest, the open source ethos is something that I'm, I'd never found until now. But that's why my whole code base, I mean, I, I wouldn't say go and use it because it's basically what I, as I learned to write code, but it's free and out there. And if someone wants to come along and, and copy paste it and, and springboard onto something else, um, we stand on the shoulder of giants and uh, you know, this industry is no different. So ask the questions and you know, there's opportunities out there and pretty much any, any background you want, you just got to start looking. Which layer do you think is grossly misunderrepresented or misunderdeveloped? Um, in what regard? In, so to give you an example, I think there is a huge opportunity for um, journalism in this space because the journalism that, you know, we've got some great bloggers and whatever else, but like, like the, the, the mainstream journalism in this space is just so far behind. It is. It is. The, the problem with journalism is how you get the incentive system for incentive system right so at the moment the internet and this is one of the fundamental flaws of the internet is it was never designed without with a payment network so unfortunately journalism resorted to clickbait which is mm -hmm. essentially um paying for ad revenue right our ad revenue keeps the lights on and, and negative headlines are what keeps the people click right exactly exactly so because you know what what i what i'm looking forward to is things like lightning network and other payment rails built on top of bitcoin is enabling things like micropayments. So because you know Bitcoin remains a, 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 a favorable asset for people to hold because of its scarcity, um, people have to be paid in it, right? Which is again, it developing those monetary characteristics. 
And with things like Lightning Network, you can actually have micropayments where people can send two cents, three cents, a dollar to get through a paywall. So suddenly individual content creators, and this is something that I'm, I actually think is, is really important. People are more willing to pay uh, in you know, things like Patreon um, for a particular service, a particular podcaster, a particular individual starting to move into this kind of gig economy where individuals can develop a following and monetize that. And people, once you start, you know, getting this real ecosystem going, people support each other, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where this industry is headed and what it's really opening up is the ability for people to make money anywhere in the world, wherever they want, um, by developing a, you know, for me, my premise has always been, I will speak my mind, you know, what you get is what you get. And it's, it's, it's my honest opinion. And am I wrong a lot of the time? Yeah, of course. Will I own up to it? Absolutely, right? Strong opinions weekly held. And people seem to appreciate that. They seem to appreciate having somebody who will at least tell them what's what, even if it goes against people's current biases, right? So that, that's really been my platform that I've, I've tried to push is saying, well, look, there's a lot of rhetoric and there's a lot of dogma in this space. And some of it comes from a place of actually selling you snake oil. And that mm. includes in the Bitcoin space. Right. Um, a lot of people don't like to talk about the flaws. I love to talk about the flaws because it's where I learn the most. So, you know, I, I think that's where we're headed is for people who create a, a, a living for themselves by making good content and making good information. People want to learn. Right. And I, I think education is probably the most important thing. And that's, again, that's why I issue all of my work free because I want everybody who follows me to learn something from it. And to be honest, I want, I want to see my followers start challenging me, right? Where I get it wrong, I want them to have got to the point where they understand the mechanics enough, they can pull me up if I'm wrong. And if we are in for a, a, another quick, um, like a rapid price increase, we are going to see a new wave of people coming in looking for education. And yes. there's going to be, there's, you know, we're three years on from 2017, 2018 bull market. Um, you know, people are going to have so many more resources now so many more blog posts uh, websites podcasts and whatever else and i just hope that that's going to be enough to keep more people in the game um, so i think if i was just to touch on that um mm -hmm. for anybody who's listening who's just entering the space stay off youtube mm -hmm. until you find somebody that you can actually trust and and listen to youtube is full of people who are just selling absolute garbage it's how i lost a vast majority of my money is that's where i started in 2018 hmm. i guarantee it'll be exactly the same podcasts are where you will find the highest signal um and mo most importantly because people like you and i right now we we speak our mind you get to hear about the person's character you get to hear about their story mm -hmm. and you can then make your decision based on that right people on youtube they just want clicks for the next next round um, and usually they're trying to sell something um it's a little bit more blatant in fact it's not a little it's a lot more blatant um, than what you'll get in, in an honest conversation where people are actually talking about ideas. They'll talk about marketing, podcast people talk about ideas, and that's really where you learn the most. Wow, awesome. Yeah, really, really excellent. Okay, um, last few questions then to close out. Um, at Checkmatey, how did you, how did you choose that, that name? How did you choose? Uh, I love the profile picture. As you know, I'm a big Bill Murray fan. I met you in the pub wearing a Bill Murray t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, at Checkmatey, um, you know, uh, yeah. Describe why that's the name, why that's the picture and why the pseudonym? 
Yeah, interesting question. To be honest, there's, there's no, not really a fixed answer for any of these things. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, checkmate. checkmate yeah. yeah check, in case you haven't noticed, there's an Australian twang in the accent. Um, yeah. So mate's always been a, a you know an interesting thing. I've right. always loved chess. I think it's I think it's the most important um, you know one of the most important games that's ever ever been created. You know, it basically evolved through all manner of societies across the entire world, and the meticulous design of how the pieces work and how how the game mechanics play out um there's just so many incredible combinations of things that can happen and you always get surprised so i've always been a big fan of of chess you know checkmate was just a it's just something that kind of came to me and um checkmate unfortunately was taken on twitter so it became checkmatey which allows me to be a pirate uh when i uh, when i really want to and um, in terms of being um, pseudonymous, I mean, the core reason for I me, mean, there's two reasons for it. One is to protect my identity um, simply because, you know, in, in this industry, it's really cool that you can be just another guy. And I often say in all my videos, I'm just a dude on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. It, it, it kind of distances you from any kind of, you know, people shouldn't rely on you because of your you know, charisma and your idea and, and your, um, you know, what you put out as a, as a frontal image. Um, I like being pseudonymous because it means that people have to challenge my ideas, not my face, right? They don't have to challenge who I am. Um, there's, you, you can be from anywhere in the world and people can still follow you for your ideas. And, you know, I really like that. It, it comes down to the open source side of things and just being able to do what you want. And if people follow you, that's great. That's an opt-in scenario, right? It kind of takes that, that person side away from it. It becomes about the ideas. Excellent. And you, you, you touched um, very, very briefly on, um, be, before I ask you that question, um, some, some other coins and you, you've mentioned Ethereum a couple of times um, and you got into a bit of a spat last week on twitter with uh with a piece that you you were invited to write this piece is that correct by it yeah so basically there's there's a newsletter um that focuses predominantly on ethereum type uh type material and you to, um do you want to show I, these guys or like uh, no no i think i think they can they can do their own thing right um but in, in short i was basically asked as somebody who's generally critical of mm. um of ethereum's design for a number of reasons Mm -hmm. um, and if, if I was to summarize my reasons, I think that the blockchain has been designed in a way that is not conducive to long-term sustainable decentralization. I think it has the propensity to centralize over time. Um, and quite frankly, when you buy into Ethereum today, it will guaranteed be different in two years time. It will right. be different. They, they have to build a whole new chain. So there's a whole lot of technical elements there. So price up or down, like what you're buying will fundamentally be, be, be different. Correct. So I, I, do, I do not know how many coins will be in existence in whatever period of time. So it becomes a question of um, it's very much like central banking. Someone still has access to the button and all, all manner of things are uncertain. To be honest, it comes down to risk and uncertainty. And where I said that Bitcoin was high risk could have gone to zero back in 2015. Ethereum is way, way back there where they, they, they don't have a finished product yet. And it's always this, oh, it's almost there. Oh, it's almost there. Anyway, so in short, I was asked to write a piece that was critical of, of Ethereum. 
And in fact, there's been a couple of articles of late that have, have, have been similar and people from within the Ethereum community are writing saying, hey, we actually have these issues here. Mm-hmm. And in short, the community did not like, I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, th- these things have somewhat of a religious cult-like behavior, but they didn't like even having the conversation about maybe there's an issue. And the social contract is one where they accept these innovations and all these things, and that's great but you need to be willing to accept constructive criticism. Now, I wouldn't necessarily call it a spat. Ethereum um, founder Vitalik um, basically wrote a, you know, a, a reasonable response on, on Reddit, to which I then, you know, it became a bit, of a bit of a thread back and forth. And what I did appreciate about his response is that he, he accepted, yes, no, you're right. There are actually issues here, here, and here. And then we talked about them and we kind of back and forth. And to me, the most important thing about that and what I actually wanted to bring out from the whole paper it was an amalgamation of ideas about why I think there's some challenges with the design and it wasn't a hit piece. The intention of it was to spark a conversation, say, Hey, there's these issues. One, if I'm wrong, I, I want to be told. So you know, yeah, help right. tell me, don't just yell at me, tell me that it's what's wrong and how we can improve. And if I'm right, I want it to hit a nerve and I want you to actually self reflect and go, oh, okay, maybe that's what the outside world sees. And maybe that's why the price is 90% depressed. So it, it, it's a bit of a self-reflection thing. And I, I like the fact that Vitalik at least had, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a really smart guy. You know, you can't take that away from him. Um, I like that he had the, um, uh, he was willing to accept certain things. He said, yes, these are all a work in progress. Um, my core argument is what it, it, it seems that it's always a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, that's fair. It is. Um, and it comes down to if, if you want to buy into that, um, you know, Ethereum is more of a Silicon Valley type um, move fast and break things approach, whereas Bitcoin is very um, methodical and um, conservative in its design because it respects that people are tying money up in this thing. Ethereum is a bit more loose. And my, my feeling is that it, it doesn't appreciate that people are locking money up in this system to the same extent that Bitcoin does. Right. So look, they're building interesting things on the project. I just don't have a firm belief in the long-term viability of it for a number of technical and social elements. So anyway, it was good to have a, uh, have a discussion with the man himself. And um, I really wish that more Ethereum community members would have the same sound conversation and say, yes, no, you're right. There actually is an issue or tell me that, you're, uh, tell me that I'm wrong. And he was the only one who stepped up to give me any of that. So... Anyway, I don't know what that says about a, a, a large community. Uh, yeah. And for me, you know, the start of the conversation, we, we, we picked out this single point of failure. And I mean, it, Ethereum is a, it, it's, for my mind, it's, it's a company with a CEO. That's pretty much where I see it. I don't want any part of that. Yeah, I, I think it replicates a lot of elements of the, the traditional banking system. Um, you know, there's a big push at the moment towards this this notion of, you know, unstoppable software where you can, you know, get collateralized loans and you can lend and you can exchange and all these things. But the reality is they sell these things as unstoppable. And when something goes wrong in the code, guess what? Somebody stops them. Um, they sell these things as decentralized and non-custodial and then surprise, surprise, there's a backdoor that allows people to drain your funds out. Um, you know, it's all for the purposes of innovation. That's fine. But this shows the limitations of blockchains. Blockchains are really, really expensive systems to maintain. 
They're in general, very difficult to upgrade. Um, very few blockchains are able to upgrade themselves. Um, you know, Bitcoin's one of Bitcoin's core values that it doesn't upgrade itself frequently. Uh, so, you know, putting software on a blockchain is often the wrong choice for a blockchain doing. If, if the government doesn't want to shut you down or someone doesn't want to stop you from doing a, a transaction, you don't need a blockchain. If someone wants to stop you from doing something like sending money. That's when you start moving into the realm of you need a blockchain. This is why the core reason that blockchain exists is for money and self-sovereign stores of value. That's really where the value add is at. Um, Ethereum started as a world computer. They're now pivoting towards trying to be money. So money is the gravity center and Bitcoin and Decred have always been building money. That's always been their core focus. And when you build something that's designed to do something specifically and you do it right, I'm going to bet on that horse. I mean, if, if you want to shut down Ethereum, you, you go after Vitalik, right? And well, to be honest, I think that's a lot of Bitcoin dogma. I don't right. think that, I think that it would, I mean, the price would probably react negatively, but I don't think that the project will shut down. I think, I think Bitcoin has liked to point a lot of fingers. Ethereum is more decentralized than most other things in the space and way more decentralized than Bitcoin and dogma would have you, have you lead on. Mm-hmm. So the core blockchain itself is very decentralized. The applications that are built on top, however, that actually, and this again comes down to my critique of Ethereum. Ethereum, because it doesn't have a hard cap, it doesn't have a supply cap, it has, it, it's hard to assign a value, right? I know there's only 21 million Bitcoin. If I own X amount of them, I own a percentage of the coins. With Ethereum, that's not the case. So it actually needs the application layer above to create a, something to do with, right? You need an action to do with your Ethereum tokens. That's the difference. So because it needs the application layer to generate value and the application layer is centralized by various teams, software teams, it's non-censorship resistance. And that means that the, the, the value accrual down the stack is reliant on centralized systems. So the blockchain itself, I believe, is, is decentralized enough that it's not going to die but the token's got to be worth something and that requires centralized applications. And that's where you get this complex interaction. Well, well, kudos uh, to you both um, for for you writing the piece and for Vitalik reaching out and um, discussing it very openly on Reddit and on Twitter uh, for everybody to see. Um, I think that was, um, you know, I read the piece. I thought it was great and um, enjoyed the, uh, the commentary afterwards between, um, between the author and, and like the, He's the CEO. He's, he's, you know, he designed the thing. So all open. Um, yeah. That's you, you don't often, there's not many other sectors you could ever say that about. Right. Um, not at all. <clears throat> okay, man. Well, uh, is there anywhere else you want to take this? Um, no, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground. It's, um, it's been a nice little all rounder and a bit of a, a bit of an insight into what goes on in my head day to day. What would you say to, to close this out to, to anyone that's now thinking about their future, um, whether they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and they want to like, um, look at a store of value or something to invest in the future is, you know, what are the on ramps now for people? You know, what's the best way that you would, where would you point someone to go and for, you know, buy your first Bitcoin? Um, well, I wouldn't really speak to, to, to actually buying it because that's, that's, you know, that's a process in itself. It depends where you are in the world. Um, what I would definitely do is I would go down the podcast rabbit hole. 
Um, to be honest, I would, I would point you to where I went, right? Go to Pete McCormack's podcast on mm. what Bitcoin did and look at the Mount Gox series because then you will get a bit of a history on where it came from. He's also got a handful that are on Silk Road, which we'll talk about where Bitcoin found its first use case and actual application. And I think those two will set the scene for where it's come from and why it's important to be censorship resistant. And once you understand those two, then you can go down that. I mean, you know, you take 10 hours out of your life to listen to these things, listen to it on the bus. And once you understand why, I'm a big fan. Once you understand why the rest will fall into place. You're right though. I mean, it takes zero hours out of your life, right? If you're on the bus or the train or you're driving like to your daily commute, you're doing it anyway. Um, and uh, if anything, they're a really fascinating story. So it's a win-win. Right. Okay. And where can people find you? Where can, where, where do you want to, um, interact with people and, uh, anything you want to mention, anyone you want to shill? Um, no, I mean, for, for me, I, I think shill yourself, right? Look after yourself and, 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 and invest in your own education. That's where it's at. Um, once you understand, you know, build your own ideas in this space. There's a lot of misinformation in this industry from, you know, very popular people. Um, you know, I like to push back against dogma because it's, it's not necessarily uh, grounded in truth. So, if, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore checkmatey underscore. Um, you'll also find me on, on YouTube. Uh, I've got a channel where I basically publish roughly once a quarter an on-chain analytics video, which is basically an hour long focusing on a handful of metrics. Um, and really that's targeted at the, the average investor who just wants macro signals um, on how to time tops and bottoms using the heartbeat of Bitcoin. So you'll find me at, at uh, Ready, Set, Crypto. So I'm a, a newsletter writer for them. Um, and you'll also find me on Medium, also at Checkmatey, um, writing mostly uh, research papers on Decred. So that's, that's pretty much, and I've got a couple there on, uh, on some Bitcoin on-chain metrics that you can keep track of, but that's, that's basically my three haunts. Excellent. And it, last question, if there was one person you could get in a room to talk about um, Bitcoin and help them understand and know that they could go out and you know, make a huge dent and reach millions of people with like just one tweet or who, who would that be? Banksy. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we covered it. <laughs> of course. Who you know who you uncovered, by the way. So poor yeah. old Banksy. Now yeah, fully out there. And um you'll uncover you'll uncover Satoshi next. No, I don't think so. Uh I mean there's there's a lot of theories about Satoshi. My my gut feel is that I don't think it's one person, I think it's a collective. Mm-hmm. Um there's some some interesting uh interesting code um trails that actually track through. Uh, both Bitcoin, Decred, and Monero, which suggests that there's more than one. Anyway, I'll leave that. That's a that's a whole another story. All right. So basically, we got to get this this podcast uh, episode into Banksy's ears, and um, then it's down to him for a uh, some street art about Bitcoin to uh, raise awareness for uh, for anybody that's looking to improve their life in the future. That's it. All right. Thanks, man. Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, man. Well, um, wow. Uh, what to say? I hope you guys enjoyed that as, uh, as much as, as much as I enjoyed, uh, the interview. Um, I hope some of you are still with us because that was a monster. I've no idea how long these interviews are going to take. Um, 
you know, it's a new show, so we'll, we'll just see where it goes. But if guests are talking, I'm never going to stop them. So, and what Checkmatey was, was talking about there, we had so many wide-ranging topics that, um, that we got into and his, his insights and his knowledge about everything just, it just keeps, I mean, it just leaves me speechless, as you can probably tell. Well, I hope you uh, hope you enjoyed that. Please, please share this podcast if you can. There's there's nothing more that can help me grow the audience and, and uh, reach more people, more interesting uh, people like Checkmatey that uh, that I can attract to the show if you guys are sharing around the platforms. So, really appreciate it if you can do that. Thanks for listening. If you got this far again, thanks for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, reach out anytime. You can. Um, you can find me on the, uh, my, my email is uh, attached to this. Actually, I'm going to update the email, so look out for that. And um, yeah, have a, great, uh, have a great day. Thank you very much.